This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. This edition of Media Business Matters is the final of four special episodes. On March 30th, 2017, the University of Michigan hosted the Future of Digital Media Businesses Symposium, which brought together four scholars who have been studying how different media industries have been disrupted by digitization. Each spoke about the transition to digital production and distribution of media industries for 30 to 40 minutes. Experts from each music recording, book publishing, television, and film industries. The talks focus on how and why each business has changed, the consequences for those working in the industry and the media they make, and what remain the greatest challenges going forward. We offer the audio from those talks here. Apologies in advance for some of the microphone glitches throughout. This episode features Dan Herbert, an associate professor in screen arts and cultures at the University of Michigan. His research focuses on the contemporary cinema industry and movie culture. He is author of Video Land, Movie Culture at the American Video Store, which was named an outstanding academic title by choice, and film remakes and franchises out this year. His essays appear in Canadian Journal of Film Studies, Creative Industries Journal, Film Quarterly, Media Industries, Millennium Film Journal, and the Quarterly Review of Film and Video, as well as in several edited book collections. Uh, Thanks uh, for coming. Thanks for sticking around if you do as we slide from cocktail hour into dinner proper. Um, I'll try to be brief, uh, but if I don't get to everything, I will self-publish later tonight. With my, with my big click of the button. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, on film. I put that in quotes because clearly film is a metonym or a synecdoche for the movie business, right? And film is not film as such any longer because they don't shoot on it and they don't project it in 45,000 screens across the United States. So what am I actually talking about that Amanda didn't talk about if we're actually talking about video? We still have the six major Hollywood studios, right? Uh, uh, And many of them have the same names that we uh, had in 1940s, 1930s previously. Uh, We also know that these are part of major big conglomerates. Uh, Sometimes they are cable providers. Sometimes they are, uh, in the past, have been French water companies. Um, But uh, the movies, I think, are still distinctive because they are still distinguished within these conglomerates themselves. That uh, Disney, for instance, has a media Thing that is where they put television. And then they have motion picture entertainment, right? And NBC Universal similarly has Universal Pictures motion picture group. So the movies still count to the conglomerates that own movie studios. And they and they and in fact the different silos or the different divisions within these conglomerates don't really talk to each other, even if at a very high level there is some corporate strategy that tries to bring everything into line. We can also talk about major independent companies, something like Lionsgate is really important, right? Because Lionsgate is not a member of the MPAA, but they make big blockbuster, big blockbuster movies like Hunger Games, La La Land. Uh, and they also make television, like Mad Men. And they also uh, uh, have channels, like the Stars uh, Network. So there are uh, things like that. I'm not going to talk much about the kind of smaller scale independent stuff, uh, however. And then uh, what Amanda calls portals. I would look to retail uh, as a way of thinking about that because that's where many of these 
new upstarts, new entrants have come from. Amazon, uh, Netflix, you should, I think, view as a retailer because they are selling a service with a particular revenue model. Um, and so it's really about accessing uh, content. And so for the rest of this talk, which I promise I'll keep brief, I really am going to have to like, do a broad overview much in the way uh, you did uh, for music um, because digital has been all over the place. Although I want to spend particular time on home video because that's where really retail has reshaped the landscape or and then now reshaped the production and distribution landscape from that position, right? So movie home video is... Oh, been the tail that's wagged the dogs of movies for over 30 years, and now it's wagging the dog of television. Briefly, though, just worth mentioning, like why, what did digital promise to movies, right? And uh, why, why bother, right? So in all forms, whether it's in the production process, the distribution, or in the exhibition, digital promised new forms of speed of production, right? Uh, uh, speed of communication, speed of delivery of content, efficiencies that way, economic efficiencies built off of that speed, and then of course flexibility, very important in the production process that with digital editing you can do things all over the place and switch it around. Flexibility on the exhibition end in that you can suddenly be very flexible and responsive to market demands on what you're showing on your screens, right? All of that says the digital promised savings. What happened? In fact, I can't say that it hasn't in, uh, created savings in some aspects, but it's also created a new kind of fragmentation of the industry. And I mean that in a kind of very industrial way, a post-Fordist way, that the number of companies now participating are greater than they were 20, 30 years ago. That's not to say that there aren't studios, but rather that you have multiplied outsourcing of multiple workflows across all sectors of production, distribution, and exhibition, home video, whatever. Right? And post-Fordism also entailing a geographic spread, right? that, that digital didn't make this happen. There were already those forces from the 60s onward in Hollywood, but digital certainly exacerbated or at least facilitated that fragmentation of the industry. In that fragmentation, it has created opportunities for specifically retailers to become very, very big and important. And then once that's accomplished, what we are seeing now is, as Amanda and others have pointed out, we see new kinds of rivalries among competitors that you would have never considered before. Like, why are we talking about a, a book-selling company rival, a rivalry with Warner Brothers? And that really is the relationship. Well, actually, no, they get along pretty well. But say with Paramount, right? Uh, and then finally, within that retail sector, uh, you see a competition for business models, right? And a multiplication of those business models. So within production, digital first hits in two areas, sound, recording, that is with the digital audio cassette, the digital tape, and then uh, in post-production, so the creation of Avid and other nonlinear systems, which are really happening in the late 80s as experiments and into the 1990s until it becomes the norm by the early 2000s that everybody's cutting nonlinearly. Over the course of the 1990s too, of course we know that CGI, computer-generated imagery, CG effects are experimented with in the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, and it's over the course of the 90s that that really becomes a very normalized part of the industry, part of the normal look of these films, especially after the economic success of, uh, well, Terminator 2 and then Jurassic Park, right? And that has all sorts of workflow changes where suddenly cinematography is just one visual element that has to be 
combined with all the computer-generated imagery and effects uh, uh, that are being produced elsewhere. And I, I want to briefly kind of note this because it's actually created huge amounts of new labor and new firms that have to be, uh, and new labor of coordinating with those firms. So the recent film, uh, Passengers, uh, the sci-fi thing that came out last November or December uh, with two very good-looking people flying through space, um, in, made by Columbia Pictures, which is, of course, owned by Sony, uh, uh, but it had, in addition to the Sony teams working on effects, it had these five companies doing various kinds of digital effects, right? So now Sony has to look to all these companies to handle all sorts of outsourced digital production, right? And what are those companies doing, et cetera, and where are they, more importantly, to my mind? So two of them uh, are in the Southern California area, right? Digital domain and instinctual VFX. One of them is doing all the 3D scanning, making beautiful 3D images of the beautiful people in those movies so they can be reproduced as digital objects in beautiful space. Uh, they're actually headquartered out of uh, Dallas, operating at the time out of Atlanta, as well as Albuquerque, et cetera. Uh, the, the one uh, at the bottom, Senate Visual Effects, operating out of London, and then move, motion, Moving Picture Company, which is actually a huge company at this point and handles visual effects for all sorts of Hollywood, big, big Hollywood productions. They're in all of those cities. So the quote from the visual effects director there, Peter Dion, says, I was located in London during post, that is editing, or whatever. Uh, so my day was mainly dictated by overlapping of time zones with other locations involved in the show. My mornings would be primarily focused on working with key team members in our Bangalore studio. My afternoons would be focused on working with key team members in our London studio. And then the evenings would be spent remotely reviewing and developing the work with Eric and the other filmmakers in LA. So I didn't highlight them all, but there's one guy coordinating four locations across, across one day, right? So that doesn't seem to me that digital has created new efficiencies, but at the same time it has, that he's even capable of doing that. Once you've shot something, now there's a real problem inside the studio, and that's that you go from working in a film celluloid world to now you're in an asset digital management world, right? That is building of digital archives, that everything coming into a studio is now a digital element, and there are piles and piles and piles and terabytes beyond counting that go into Warner, go into Sony, wherever. And so now this has produced an entire new bubble with, of work and infrastructure within the studios, right? So you've got massive infrastructure of, of the pipes, of the, of the cables, of the servers, right? The volume of material, like the shooting ratios now on a normal picture, because everything is in digital suits, like you just why not keep rolling, is like something like 200 to one. In terms of like what people are shooting is 200, about 200, and then they only use one element. So like, yeah, it's crazy. This also means that uh, you have to hire all sorts of or train uh, expert labor, whereas it used to be people that would make sure that there wasn't vinegar syndrome or that you knew how to keep the film prints cool. Now you've got huge numbers of da data managers making sure that what? You migrate the files from, from format to format because within the industry, if you don't migrate, it will die. Right? And so, and the lifespan of these files is roughly seven years. So that they view something like, let's say, they shoot uh, a Harry Potter movie. Seven years later, they have to put it onto some new platform or else it's, it's dead to them. Right? So there's this perpetual upgrading that is now required, which of course takes huge amounts of electricity. 
And not only is this happening in the studio, but it's often outsourced, right? So Warner Brothers, in particular, like outsourced to Deluxe to handle all of this stuff as they made this transition from celluloid to digital, right? And Deluxe was famously a film developer prior to this. Warner's holdings of digital assets are actually not largely on the Warner property, but rather held by the University of Southern California, right? So there's these, all these new kinds of institutional arrangements uh, just in terms of making sure that Harry Potter DVDs can come out in 2030. Nevertheless, to the distributors, right, what are they actually up to? Right? The studios, as they define themselves, are still in the same business, and that is developing and exploiting intellectual property in as many ways as possible. And for them, the television or the Netflix or the VHS tape were always just one avenue to sell content. Right? So the studios we can't think of necessarily as like studios with roofs, right? but rather IP warehouses. Right? And that uh, now what we've seen with the digital is just that the number of outlets for the exploitation of that IP has multiplied. Some be are better than others. This also means that with that multiplication, that there's a new level of intensity to making sure that all of those firms are coordinated with and that the terms of the various contracts are constantly being renegotiated and negotiated over and over again, right? So new kinds of bureaucratic management. Okay, so before getting to home video, I do want to mention uh, theaters, right? So similarly with uh, uh, film theaters, it's hard to remember now, I think, in 2017, that in fact, in 2005, digital projection was actually pretty rare, right? And then somehow, in 2010, it became very commonplace. How and why did this happen, right? So because the, the, the benefit would have been is uh, that you can program different kinds of uh, programming more easily with digital, right? That you don't have to switch out a film print. And that, of course, the production of a film print was roughly $6,000 per film and creation of a digital file, much cheaper than that. And if you're thinking you're playing on 20,000 screens in a, in a country, that's very, very expensive, right? But nevertheless, there was a fight between the studios and the theaters about who's going to pay for this, right? The studio said, well, I don't want to pay for it. And the, uh, uh, the theater said, well, I'm still making my money on popcorn, largely, so I really am not going to pay for this. Until, and this is why we all have, and so I should say, like, yeah, there were roughly 3,000 digital projection screens in 2005, and presently, all but 800 are digital in the United States today. That means there are 45,000 digital projected screens uh, in commercial theaters. What happened? It was a, one specific deal with J.P. Morgan at the middle, where the uh, theaters took out a $1 billion loan to upgrade all their uh, projectors to digital, and over the course of time, the studios have paid that loan back. The way they've done that and the reason that made sense is that they've been paying that back at a rate that was normally the cost that they were spending on producing celluloid film prints, right? So they're like, well, we're already spending that level of money and in the long-term savings will be awesome. Now, the other thing that happened in 2009, as soon as this happened, was Avatar, right? And Avatar and the whole 3D thing was like, oh, I can't wait to start counting that new money because we're going to raise the ticket prices to $15, $20, and it's going to be great. The problem is that, in fact, 3D has not proven to be the answer, that the market share for 3D was peaked at 2010 at 20% of overall 
box office, and now it's back down to about 14, 13% of overall box office. So people still go to 3D, sure, but it's just not the kind of industry saver that people hoped that it might be. Okay, I had to do that. So before we, again, constantly delaying talking about retail. Before we talk about digital retailing, it's worth mentioning too that again, home video has been the tail that wagged the dog for a long time and that by 1987, VHS sales were higher than, that is home video revenue was higher than theatrical revenue. So home video has been the center of the industry for 30 years now, right? Um, VHS posed problems though in various ways. Uh, one, because it was actually expensive to manufacture the tapes, and two, and perhaps more importantly, VHS, for a variety of reasons, led to a rental market, which was then three-stage, right, where the studios were making, at least three-stage, studios were making movies, right, and then you have these distributors putting the movies onto tape and sending them out, and then you have these retailers these renters, these video stores, that are making all this money off of the recurrent rental of those things, right? And they just slipped out of the studio's hands, and once that was established as a cultural practice, they just watched that all that money go away, and they were very angry. So from the start, DVD was designed as a straight-to-consumer product, right? It was sold to us 10 years ago now. No, 20 years ago, it's 97. 97, DVD comes out, and it's sold to us for digital audio, improved picture files, right? But really, its motivating factors were it was much cheaper to produce than VHS tapes. And two, because of that fact, they could price it in a way that it would create a sell-through market. And we all know, somewhere in our basements, we have DVD collections, which seemed like the thing to do, right? Why did we collect them? Because Warner Brothers and Walmart told us you want to collect. You're a cinephile. You should buy these things. Don't rent them, right? And so we bought DVDs. And this was from, like, you know, 98 to 2005, the studios were literally just rolling in DVD money. They, as soon as DVD saturates, right, in 2005, they roll out the Blu-ray. And unfortunately, that just never took off for them. Or unfortunately for them. Or for us, it's fine, because we can digital download, right? So Blu-ray was never really going to replace DVD. Um, its promises of quality were, yeah, it's better, but it wasn't so much better that it needed, that we all ran out and bought players, etc. Ultimately, what happened was digital delivery. That at the same time Blu-ray is being rolled out, is essentially the same time that the streaming services are coming online. Right? And, and we're, as, a, as, a, as a culture and as an economy, we're evaluating, do we prize quality, picture, picture quality over convenience, right? And we value convenience. And so we get to the, state, the place where we are today, which another scholar, Chuck Tryon, has called platform mobility. And this is where I think Amanda and I, our, our stuff actually does totally come together, where what we're talking about is a new industrial and cultural environment where the following things are true. And I like a platform on mobility as an umbrella term because it actually, I think, does encapsulate these multiple and intertwining factors, right? Multiplication of screens that we view on. Mobile, audience who, mobile audiences who want to watch things sometimes on a train or on a plane, etc. Portable media, right, along with those mobile audiences. And then finally, uh, that we want our content that we like to be available on the multiple screens that we encounter or own. Again, this has led to the entry of new players. 
each of them with a different rev revenue model. But we should back up real quick before I wrap it up and say that sell-through still remains the center of the studio's revenue. That even last year they made six, and this is a crazy figure, six billion dollars on disc sales. I know, who's buying them? I don't know. But there's six billion dollars, so, and, and, and they've, everything that the studios have done vis-a-vis -vis streaming or digital download has been maintained and to not cannibalize or, or deteriorate the sale of tangible discs, right? So things like Walmart are central to the biz media business, and we need to think about that. Like Amazon's there, Netflix is there, and Walmart in 2002 was the market share. They were the biggest movie theater in the United States, selling 25% of all DVDs, right, and way outpacing Blockbuster or any of the theater chains, right? And so even, and even Walmart has a streaming service now, right? So we have to think of them as a media company. Uh, I'm going to skip the ultraviolet thing because it's gone. So for the next few minutes before I totally close, just focusing on that, it seems to me that these are really the three companies that are worth talking about. Hulu's there, and I think, like Amanda, I want to kind of push them aside. I would push them aside because I primarily think of them as a TV company and that I'm trying to stay focused on movies. So iTunes, the studios actually seem to really like iTunes, uh, and they start selling television and movies in 2005. Uh, and start allowing for downloads a, a few years after that. Why do, they, why do they like it? Initially, they like iTunes because it maintains the same price structure as tangible media, right? So that, except TV throws that off, because how do you price TV in a commodity form uh, of disk? But uh, yeah, that the electronic sell-through, or EST, is mirrored on the sell, sale of DVDs at Walmart or on Amazon, right? So, and... Uh, yeah, and, and so it's only later that Netflix will start renting movies, which of course aren't really rentals. It just means that you've paid a thing for it to disappear off your computer after 24 hours. It's a license. Um, and those price points are similarly at or above what you would have found at a video rental store, right? Certainly above what you find at a red box. Netflix, as we know, it's subscription video on demand. What do they have? That they're the first thing to go online with a huge abundance of streaming options uh, and, and, and in some cases mainstream options, right? And so the comparison for me there is very similar to, and this is 2007, 2008. They're comparable to the people and the companies that entered home video distribution in the wild west of the early 80s. That the studios really didn't know how valuable home video could be and so they were putting out licenses quite cheap. And the initial contracts with Netflix were robbery, right? And then, but the problem is that this, as Netflix has proven to be hugely, uh, uh, have huge revenue, right? Then you've got to re-up and you've got to uh, uh, renegotiate. And suddenly that looks really tense. And the studios start withdrawing all sorts of stuff. And so as Netflix is watching, and this is exactly at the 2010-2000 period where those contracts are starting to be renegotiated, that Netflix is like, hey, Let's make some movies, let's, or more, more truthfully, actually, let's make some television. Finally, uh, Amazon, right? They're kind of the one-stop shop because they're, and, and, and many of the studios really value them, and they're in a weird position. And I understand, truthfully, Amazon's so powerful, I don't know that why they haven't just taken over. Um, but because the, the studios do rely on them for tangible DVD sales, Blu-ray sales. 
They also go to them for electronic sell-through. And of course, Amazon Prime connected uh, diaper shoppers to uh, uh, video streamers, right? I'm one of them. Um, and so you've got all of the different retail models under one corporate umbrella, which seems to me like if you're not the first mover advantage, then at least you've got all your cover bases covered, right? Similarly, though, they move into uh, creating their own stuff. Uh, and I think that will cause, I, I, I mean, I guess I'm just like you. I don't know quite what's going to happen with that over time, other than to watch how the studios try to position themselves vis-a-vis -vis Amazon, who they're very reliant upon for selling their own product. And then I guess I also want to mention that the cinema still has a place, right? Because as we know, Manchester by the Sea was an Amazon film, right? And so Amazon will put movies into theaters for the prestige economy because culture sells and prestige sells culture to some extent, right? Maybe I'll close on this. All right. So... As a last, uh, latest thing over the last year, what we've seen is the studios uh, try to sell us the idea that we can watch movies, big mainstream movies, on our televisions through some new black box uh, that will be uh, like movies like I could watch what's coming out this weekend. I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. We could watch what's coming out this weekend uh, right now, right? So the question there is how much is it worth it to kind of keep people from theaters uh, and then what's the release date? Should we release it on the same day as the theatrical release or some other time? So last year there was all this push for something called the screening room, which I think was priced around $50, and it was going to release movies, mainstream movies, on television at the same time as the, as the, uh, as the theatrical release, right? NATO, that is not uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, but rather the uh, National Alliance of Theater Owners, really pushed back. And so now we've got this new endeavor, which doesn't have a name yet, where the studios are working with the theaters to come up with some revenue-sharing model. It will still be a $50 fee or so, and uh, the films will be released roughly two weeks uh, uh, after they come out. So there will still be some lag. So this is like hot-shot Netflix for people who can't wait for fantastic beasts and where to find them. Um, I was going to close with piracy because I think that, uh, in fact, that's always the elephant in the room that structures all of this stuff. It's super efficient, uh, and the studios fight it left and right. And Yeah, okay, I will give myself two minutes for this. So, yeah, historically, what have the studios done vis-a-vis -vis uh, piracy, right? One, complain about so-called so losses, which are on countable, truthfully. Two, lobby, lobby, lobby. And they're still doing that, although less so. More now, truthfully, they are funding Republican uh, uh, campaigns. Um, and three, uh, sue the pants off of individuals and companies that do any of this stuff, right? Especially making examples of kids in Sweden or in Spain. What's really going on, though, is that they take this externality of supposed loss and internalize it within the production flow. So what do they do? They make movies that are commercials for things that aren't pirated, right? Or they put beer and cars in the movies from which they're, now they're, they're retail, they're, they're getting the money from BMW or Budweiser or whatever. And then finally, it's a struggle within the delivery systems like the Netflixes and the Amazons to be so easy and so cheap and have such rich content that piracy is too much hassle. Right? And the threat of the litigation keeps you from doing it. So that seems to me like where the movies are. Thanks. <laughs>